all students, including students of color and LGBTQIA students, just want to be safe at school and see themselves reflected in what they are learning. Coming up on Carolina Connection, the Republican-controlled state Senate passed the controversial Parents' Bill of Rights. Good morning, I'm Sophie Mallinson. And I'm Will Christensen. Also this morning, Chapel Hill's Turkish community raises money after catastrophic earthquakes in Turkey and Syria. UNC makes mental health care more convenient. Artificial intelligence blurs the line between the work of students and computers. And a thousand runners wolf down donuts for NC State's annual Krispy Kreme challenge. Within the hour? Oh boy. I mean, I feel like the hard part is the donuts. Running an hour is nothing. So I, I think I can do it. I think I can do it. From the UNC Hussman School of Journalism and Media, this is Carolina Connection. Thanks for joining us. North Carolina legislators want to change how public schools talk about gender and sexuality. The state Senate this week passed what supporters call the Parents' Bill of Rights, but opponents say it places an undue burden on school staff and puts LGBTQ students at risk. Hannah Noel has the story. The North Carolina Senate passed the Parents' Bill of Rights Tuesday evening after multiple meetings for discussion, approvals through committees, and input from passionate citizens. The bill bans instruction on gender identity, sexual activity, and sexuality for kindergarten through fourth grade. It also requires schools to inform parents when a student requests to change their name or pronouns in school records, allows parents to review their child's library records, and requires teachers to report if a student comes to them with a mental health issue. But the bill's sponsors explain that their goal is about Placing a strong emphasis on communication between school and the home. Republican Senator Amy Gailey, representing Alamance and Randolph Counties, is one of the bill's three primary sponsors. They hope to promote and enhance the relationship between parents and school staff. But many in opposition to the bill argue that it would put LGBTQ children in a dangerous situation if they're not ready to discuss certain topics with their parents, but are ready to talk with school staff. A few Democratic senators raised their concerns in a committee meeting Monday, questioning the need for this bill when many of these rights afforded to parents already exist. Senator Julie Mayfield of Buncombe County also raised concerns about schools' ability to ensure students' safety if the bill is passed. This bill makes school an unsafe place for a number of children who don't feel comfortable talking to their parents about everything, and but also now may not feel comfortable talking to a trusted um, teacher or coach or principal. The bill has received significant pushback from the community as well. A large crowd of parents, students, teachers, and health experts gathered at the meeting. One such person is Christy Puckett of the ACLU of North Carolina and a parent to three public school students. All students, including students of color and LGBTQIA students, just want to be safe at school and see themselves reflected in what they are learning. Puckett argues that the bill would also place a burden on school staff, forcing them to bring sensitive information about their students to parents, even if the students aren't ready, as well as keeping teachers from discussing sexuality and gender issues in the classroom. Schools cannot continue to function if they are constantly being required to justify their curriculum or instructions to parents who may hold diametrically opposing viewpoints. That's not how public school works or what even parental rights mean. Another person who spoke against the bill was UNC Associate Professor Amy Getzinger a clinical health psychologist and parent. The American Psychological Association has guidelines for the practice of psychology. There are ethics codes, not doing harm. This bill does harm. I'm a healthcare expert, a mental health expert. 
The implications of this bill are very extreme and very troubling. Supporters of the bill also spoke at the meeting Monday, including parents from Moms for Liberty, a group that advocates for the defense of parents' rights at all levels of government. Mari Booth, a parent and member of Moms for Liberty, argued, Despite how much we trust our schools and teachers, we do not co-parent with these institutions. One of the other sponsors of the bill, Senator Michael Lee of New Hanover County, responded to concerns about students in potentially abusive situations. If a counselor believes that the parent is going to create or allow to be created serious emotional damage to the juvenile, they don't have to notify the parent. But what are the next steps? The bill will now head to the House. Governor Roy Cooper has criticized the bill previously, and many expect him to veto it. But Republicans would need to flip only one House Democrat in order to override the expected veto. In Chapel Hill, I'm Hannah Noel. Two earthquakes struck Syria and Turkey Monday, killing more than 20,000 people. Groups across campus and the Chapel Hill community are raising funds for survivors, with one organization, the Bridge for Turkey, raising over $3 million so far. Here to talk with us is Gwen Sanjar, co-founder of the Sanjar Turkish Cultural and Community Center. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. I'm happy to be speaking with you. I actually wanted to start by asking you to share what your experiences in Turkey have been like. Most of the time when I visit Turkey, I visit my in-laws who are wonderful people. The Turkish people are a wonderful, warm people, and I've experienced that warmth over and over again uh, being hosted in their homes. Now, obviously, Turkey was recently hit by these devastating earthquakes, and the death toll is continuing to rise to a scale that's rather incomprehensible. While the effects on Turkey are obviously devastating, could you speak to any effects on the local community? I've heard from several students that they are extremely upset. In many ways, they feel as though their hands are tied, that there's not much that they can do, and they worry about their country right now and what's going to happen to it. I mean, devastation of this size is as you said, almost incomprehensible, the the number of people who are dead, and also the effect that it's going to have not only on the families, but also on the Turkish economy for a long time to come. But as far as the local students go, I think the main difficulty that I sense they're having is that their countrymen are suffering. In some cases, their families are suffering, and they are here. They can't be there to comfort them. Both this center and its sister organization, the Bridge to Turkey, have been raising donations. How does it feel to see that community support during this time? Oh, it's it's terrific. I've actually absolutely astonished by uh, the generosity of people. In addition to the money that has gone to Bridge to Turkey, we've also had numerous calls and emails asking if people could donate goods, such as, let's say, winter coats. And what I would say is, while that's a very generous thought, in fact, what the people in Turkey need right now is money to rebuild. It's more use of the donation to send it over as cash rather than as goods, at least right now, because the goods can often be, often, not always, but often be purchased more cheaply on site. In addition to donations, you said cash will be ultimately better than goods, but are there other aid efforts that you think might not be getting enough attention, or is there more that people can do? Don't forget Oftentimes when we have catastrophes like this, people rally around and, you know, they send money for the next few weeks and then they forget. This is going to be a very long-term recovery. And in addition, there are going to be a lot of people around you here who are grieving for their relatives, for their uh, country, for the area where they grew up, etc. This 
earthquake is of such magnitude, it's, it's, it's going to change a lot. Even this is something you kind of already mentioned, but oftentimes we only tend to hear about places in the news when they experience tragedies. But obviously this tragedy is not all that Turkey is. Mm -hmm. So I was curious if you wanted to share anything else about the country, whether it's a joyful memory or just something you wish maybe more people knew. I would say that it's a beautiful country. The people are friendly. They're hardworking people, and they are very family-oriented people. They are in that way, like many Americans, they just live in a different country. Well, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. That was Gwen Sanjar, co-founder of the Sanjar Turkish Cultural and Community Center. When UNC students try to arrange campus mental health appointments, they're often faced with wait times of several weeks. But now, UNC's Counseling and Psychological Services is trying a new approach, bringing counselors to the classroom. Counselors now have offices in the Hussman School of Journalism and Media and the Eshelman School of Pharmacy, so students can get class and counseling in one place. Savannah Gunter has more. Mental health needs are universal on UNC's campus, but sometimes people need to be met where they are. Since January, UNC alumni Ardith Burks and Carolyn Ebling have offered one-on-one therapy for journalism and pharmacy students as part of a CAPS program. Burks, the Eshelman School's counselor, says the program centers on convenience and relatability. I actually get a sense of um, the culture of the place. I get a sense of understanding sort of the rhythms of the student life. Burks says directing her attention to a specific student group allows for easier connection both in subject matter and physically, in her office in Beard Hall. She says the process is similar to CAPS, just easier and more focused. The first step is a 20 to 30 minute triage appointment where we get an understanding of what it is that they're seeking support around and would like help with, and then develop a plan for um, how we can support them in meeting those needs. Students can email counselors directly for appointments. But Carolyn Ebling, Hussman's counselor, says that feeling of direct connection goes both ways. Ebling, who uses the pronoun they, says their stint on the Daily Tar Heel connects them to student journalists. Just knowing the amount of writing that they're doing is part of some of the stress that students are under and just like having to constantly produce is something that, you know, has been conversations. Both Burks and Ebling say their offices have been full of students already. There's been a strong student response from the start, and students seem really pleased that this is being offered to them and that it is so convenient. Embedded counselors provide safe spaces for students in professional schools, but for those who aren't, other resources offer personalized connection. UNC sophomore Bobby Peters is on the executive board for one of them called Peer to Peer. Sometimes, like, you need to talk about something and you just feel like, you like your friends just don't get it or another counselor might not get it so I think it's really nice to have someone who can really relate and to just feel you on that level. Peters says peer-to-peer sources students with various lived experiences to talk to their UNC peers. He notes that these are students not therapists but they still aim to give that safeness and reliability. He says right now the program operates mostly online but in a variety of ways. We operate through Zoom, Um, We can do phone calls, we can do um, FaceTime, um, or just text. Peter says mental health affects every college student, which is why he takes time to talk to students whenever he can. I got involved last November, I believe, um, after our campus faced a a really tough time mental health-wise. And I think I just saw that 
mental health and unrecognized and underappreciated like loneliness among college-age students coming out of the pandemic was possibly the greatest threat to my friends, my community on campus. College can be a hard time, and whether it's CAPS, an embedded counselor, or a peer, those involved share a real desire to reach students. Ebling says part of that means working to combat the stigma around seeking help. There's like a great deal of stigma, for, no matter who you are, um, and I'm hoping to help, you know, erase that stigma and hoping that folks feel like really, like this is a warm and welcoming space. Um, and I just feel like giving that support in what is and can be some really difficult years. Embedded counselors seek to lessen this stigma by realizing the number of students in the same classrooms who feel the same way. Burke says part of the job is making sure people don't feel alone. And so for me, I just want to really provide a space where people can feel comfortable and safe to talk about whatever is on their mind and they're seeking support about, but also just really to to normalize. Programs like CAPS and Peer-to-Peer are resources for UNC students struggling with their mental health or who just need a safe space in their lives. In Chapel Hill, I'm Savannah Gunter. You're listening to Carolina Connection, UNC's student-produced newscast. I'm Sophie Mallinson. And I'm Will Christensen. A new tool has entered college curriculums, artificial intelligence. At UNC, professors and students alike are learning to navigate what computers can do for them. Sophia Basurto has the story. Now, you've got a prompt here on the screen, and you can imagine anything you would like. What would you like to see an illustration of? The Mandalorian having Starbucks. William Emmerman, an adjunct instructor at the Hussman School of Journalism and Media, navigates the AI image generator Midjourney. The Mandalorian. How do you spell Mandalorian? I think it's right. Drinking a Starbucks coffee. Mm-hmm. AI generators like Midjourney create at the request of its user. For Emmerman, it's created an image of a Star Wars Mandalorian sitting, drinking Starbucks coffee. The image is colorful, with a Mandalorian accurately drawn in his helmet and armor suit. There is a resemblance of a Starbucks logo on the coffee cup, but it is not accurate. At UNC, Emmerman uses both Midjourney and the AI text generator chat GPT in his Emerging Technologies class. For their final project, his students used AI to write and illustrate how they have been changed by emerging technologies throughout their life. Even though I knew and understood the technology and even though I was having them use it in the class, the final results were something that were unexpected in my mind. Um, you know, here you had you know, full-blown college papers with beautiful illustrations being turned in that had been written by artificial intelligence. Colby Tixiera turned in a YouTube video for his final in Ammerman's class. Dante walks through the theory landscape of hell. Deep in thought. The voice of Morgan Freeman narrates a take on the Divine Comedy as Dante and Virgil converse about the potential threats of artificial intelligence to human creatives. The Pohut War is about the rise of artificial intelligence and its potential for hate to human creatives like himself. He fears being replaced. He fears middle becoming softer than flesh. Dante clutches a pen close. 
Dixieta constructed his final project entirely using AI, using it for the script, art, and voices. And it was amazing. So I was like, wow, this, it, it wrote out like a the whole story for me. I, I made it very detailed. I had like the most detailed prompt I could imagine. It was like asking a genie for a wish. And it just went on. It wrote my entire story for me. As an artist, Dixieta also grappled with the role AI has in creative work. It takes a big chunk out of making the work itself. But in terms of creativity, Dixieta compared it with how one orders food at restaurants. With AI, you have to be really good at ordering to get what you'd like from the chef. This chef has, maybe he's stolen recipes from across the street. Maybe he's done X, Y, Z. And sometimes the food comes back eh, a, little, a little weird in some sense, like, why does this fried chicken taste a little bit like honey? But it's still really good. The food is really good. Ammerman isn't the only one at UNC using AI. Stephen King, a professor at the Hussman School of Journalism and Media, is aware students are using the tool. I think what we need to do is to help them learn how to use that tool well and to raise our level of expectations so that the assignments are even harder now that they have this tool, that they can now be more creative, they can do more work, they can solve more problems because they have this tool at their disposal. King says that as a tool, it can be used for good and for bad. Therefore, accountability is important, and so is transparency. Keenan Flagler Business School professor Patricia Harms says that students should consider the lack of transparency of chat GPT sources and hesitate before using it for assignments. But you really lose, you know, your credibility when you don't have the ability to go back and tell where information came from, when you're not being transparent about how you did your work. Much like doing a math problem, being able to show your work as you work through the problem. As a tool, AI shows a lot of promise, but as any new tool, clearly defining its limitations is important. In Chapel Hill, I'm Sofia Basurto. And now for a story of technology gone wrong. UNC students are among the thousands of Taylor Swift fans who are frustrated trying to buy tickets last year for her Eras tour. Last month, Ticketmaster and its parent company, Live Nation, were called before the Senate Judiciary Committee following a lawsuit by Swift's fans. Kyle Turek reports. Lover was trash, in my opinion. Sorry. Reputation's fine. 1989 was... Okay. UNC senior Abby Roy is not a diehard Swifty by any means. I don't have thoughts on her as like a person. I think she's a businesswoman first, but I think her music's fun. She was excited at the announcement of the Eras tour despite not knowing a lot of Taylor Swift's music. I was very excited because I primarily love her earlier stuff. And so I was like, hell yeah, like I wanna go see that. I wanna like see like her earlier music that I never got a chance to see when I was younger. Uh, but I also knew that it was going to be chaos. The process to buy tickets online ended up being much more complicated than she anticipated though. That the entire line paused for about, for me, like eight hours. I think I was shoved to the back of the line like due to the site restarting multiple times and then like once I actually got into like the ticket selection process you would like choose a set of tickets hit like proceed to check out and then it would be like oh someone else took these and so it was just like rapidly picking things like hit and go immediately and then just seeing what stuck. 
Roy was ultimately successful in her attempt to purchase tickets, but many fans were not. The constant site crashing and cancellation of promised public on-sale times caused more than 300 Swifties to join together in a lawsuit against Ticketmaster. The suit alleges fraud and antitrust violations. These views were echoed by Democratic Senator Amy Klobuchar at a hearing of the Senate Judiciary Committee last month. I believe in capitalism and to have a strong capitalist system, you have to have competition. You can't have too much consolidation, something that unfortunately for this country, as a uh, ode to Taylor Swift, I will say, we know all too well. UNC media law professor Amanda Reed broke down what Congress is concerned about. Ticketmaster currently controls over 70% of the market for ticketing and live events and it is hands down the market leader. Now, because it's not the only seller in the market, it's not technically a monopoly, but its large market share gives it a lot of dominance. It gives it a dominant position, which can raise concerns that it might abuse that market power, which is what Congress is trying to look at. Ticketmaster and its parent company Live Nation merged back in 2010. Since then, there have been growing concerns about the company's dominance in the live concert arena. In 2019, the Justice Department claimed the company had repeatedly violated the terms of its regulatory agreement by threatening to withhold tours from venues that did not sign exclusive deals with Live Nation. The approving of that merger came with some conditions that uh, Ticketmaster spin off some of its other subsidiaries so that it wouldn't be too dominant a player. But the question is, has that worked out? At the hearing, Live Nation CFO Joe Birchtold said the biggest issue with the Taylor Swift on sale came from online bot attacks. We knew bots would attack that on sale and planned accordingly. We were then hit with three times the amount of bot traffic that we'd ever experienced. And for the first time in 400 verified fan on sales, they came after our verified fan password servers as well. This is what led to a terrible consumer experience, which we deeply regret. Birchtold pointed to competitors such as SeatGeek and Eventbrite to dispute Klobuchar's claim that Live Nation is a monopoly. He claimed ticketing has never been more competitive. In Chapel Hill, I'm Kyle Turek. After a busy first week, 22-year-old UNC women's field hockey coach Erin Matson is settling into her new role leading the same program she played for just one season ago. Now, with a week of practices and media appearances under her belt, she reflects on her time as a player and looks forward to her future as a coach. Henry Taylor reports. The sound of the song Dancing Queen by ABBA reverberates throughout Karen Shelton Stadium, the home of the UNC women's field hockey team, as players run drills. The stadium was named in honor of Karen Shelton, who recently retired as the team's head coach. These drills are now being led by Aaron Matson, the new head coach, who played on the very same field as a regular team member just one season ago. After just one week on the job, she's noticed how different it is from simply being on the team. Definitely, you know, taking away that layer of just simplicity a little bit when you're here as a student athlete. Obviously, as a player, show up for practice, get good grades, and be a good reflection of the program and everything. But as a coach, there's, you know, business meetings and finance, and this is what we're promising recruits. It's been a lot for one person to learn in such a short period of time, which is why Matson has listened closely to any and all advice she's received from Shelton. Too much advice to remember and rattle off to you right now. 
Um, she's on speed dial right now. So if I ever have questions when it comes to recruiting, obviously budgeting and financing stuff, donors and you know supporters, um, building relationships with them and fundraising, little nitty gritty details that no one really even knows or thinks about. Um, except, you know, head coaches and, and their support staff. Having graduated only one month ago, Matson is already close with many of the field hockey team members. A few spoke rather highly of the effect she's had on the team. We're all always so competitive, and, like, I think one of the reasons why we're like that is because of Erin, because she was always like that. That's freshman team member Riley Heck, who got to play with Matson for one season before her hiring. As she sees it, Matson's winning mindset began to rub off on the team even before she was hired. She knows the system, she knows us, and playing with her for a year, I kind of realized how her game is, and she is the most competitive person I've ever played with. Her coaching us and teaching us how to do that is great. While Heck praised Matson's competitive spirit, senior Peyton Worth pointed out an openness towards coach-team collaboration as one of the former players' strong suits. We're putting a big focus on communication, as she is one of our peers, now our head leader, so, you know, if we don't like something and it's not, we don't feel like it's working or beneficial, then absolutely speak up. That collaborative attitude has even resulted in Matson running drills alongside her team, which for the time being is her way of reconnecting with her time as a player. I plan to still play in some practices. I ran with the girls yesterday, um, so that'll be my taste of it, at least for now, for the foreseeable future. We'll see down the road once we get settled and, you know, hopefully a couple national championships under the belt that, um, that then we can revisit that. In Chapel Hill, I'm Henry Taylor. A unique spectacle returned to Raleigh last weekend after a short hiatus due to COVID. NC State hosted its 19th Krispy Kreme Challenge, and a thousand competitors showed up for the face-stuffing and stomach-churning event. Christian Phillips reports from the race's starting line. Despite the temperature being in the mid-twenties, the spirits at the starting line for the Krispy Kreme Challenge were certainly high. The thousands of runners faced a unique challenge, among other road races. A two-and-a-half-mile run, where they would stop and eat a dozen donuts as quickly as possible, followed by an additional two and a half mile run back to the starting line, the return being mostly uphill. Here, I'm uh, ready to rock and roll on this thing. Josh Sign showed up ready for the frigid race in a t-shirt and shorts. The final piece of the challenge was to complete the race within an hour. Daunting, certainly, but most challengers were confident. Within the hour? Oh boy. I mean, I feel like the hard part is the donuts. Running an hour is nothing. So I, I think I can do it. I think I can do it. The race set off promptly at 8 a.m. and was won shortly after by James Flasses. Flasses finished with a time of 33 minutes and 15 seconds. Perfect. Uh, just uh, very cold, but uh, it was yeah. nice. It was a nice race. As for Josh Sign, the race turned out to be tougher than expected, finishing with a time of one hour and three minutes. Krispy Kreme challenge is no joke. The donuts were cold. The air was cold. I was cold. It was tough. The crowd really did pump me up, though, at the end. Got second wind of energy, but sadly could not complete the challenge in time. I think I felt sick like halfway through the dozen. I didn't finish. It only got through nine. You got to smash them. Got to smash them as tight as you can. But they just get so dense. Winning the race wasn't the only prize, however, as there was also a costume competition to see which runner can wear the most surprising or creative attire to the race. The winner was Delaney McPhail from Fugue Arena, who dressed as, you guessed it, a donut. 
After Sign finished, he wasn't too thrilled to hear that he had been beaten by a swarm of bees, a unicorn, and two hot dogs. Oh boy. <laughs> Man, it's, it's devastating. I'm so disappointed in myself, but next year, I'm winning this thing. Certainly a bold prediction. Reporting from Raleigh, I'm Christian Phillips. Finally today, Valentine's Day can be a controversial holiday. Some love to celebrate love, but others are left feeling a little bitter. Carolina Connections' Annie LeBaron and Kyle Turek went to the quad to find out just how UNC students feel about the holiday. L is for the way you look. I'm Molly John. I'm a freshman. Last year I got broken up with right before Valentine's Day, so I'm not a big Valentine's Day fan. I'm Alex Bean. I'm a junior. Um, my birthday's on Valentine's Day, but the thing that sucks about having your birthday on Valentine's Day is that you can never get a reservation anywhere. Love is all that I can give to you. I am Andrew Spratley, I'm class of 2024, and my thoughts on Valentine's Day is the holiday is the day after, because that's when you get all the candy cheap. My name is Kate, and I'm a senior. I think it's really, it overcomplicates relationships, because somebody may be like in between, right? And you're like, I don't know how I'm feeling, I don't know what I'm doing about this, and then all of a sudden, bam, will you be my Valentine? And you're like, what? I'm Jack Wilson. My thoughts on Valentine's Day this year are that love isn't real. The root of all suffering is love, so if you have no love, then there is no suffering. So that's my opinion, yeah, thank you. <laughs> And that's it for this edition of Carolina Connection, a production of the UNC Husband School of Journalism and Media. Our technical director is Charisma Daniel. I'm Sophie Mallinson. And I'm Will Christensen. You can hear more of our stories at carolinaconnection.org or wherever you get your podcasts. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram at UNC Connection and on Facebook at Carolina Connection. Thanks for listening.